0: Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 139, and we will be going to the notorious chapter today, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, and we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the spirit of truth whom you've sent to be with us and in us forever, We thank you for the spirit of truth who guides us into all the truth with the special intention of glorifying your son, Jesus Christ, so that we may see him with the eyes of our heart. May that be the result of what we're looking at today in the scriptures. May the scriptures indeed be what they are to us, a mirror in which we gaze at the image of the Lord in order to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next into his image. Grant us the grace to press on, Father. Bring us to completion as this exhortation says. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 6, as we've seen, begins with the inferential conjunction dio, which means therefore, And then the word leaving, which means to strongly abandon and leave behind the merely anticipative word about the Messiah. In order to grasp or wrap your brain around that little phrase, the merely anticipative word about the Messiah, I would urge you to review the last increment, increment 138. Because it does not mean elementary doctrine about the Christ. It means rather anticipative doctrine like messianic prophecies in the Old Testament or doctrine which Christ is prefigured in the animal sacrifices, etc. Then it says, and I think this is really the central exhortation or at least a version of it in Hebrews 6, one. let Let's be brought to completion. Sometimes when I think of this verse, I think it should be trans- it, it's translated, let's go on to completion, but it doesn't say that. It's in the passive voice, and the passive voice is often the voice of grace because the action for bringing to completion has to be performed by the Lord. In fact, I think it has to be performed by the same one who is carrying everything to a redemptive conclusion and redeeming history itself that being Jesus Christ. In fact, the same word is used here for both, and it's pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O, not pharaoh of Egypt. This means to carry, to bear up, and to carry, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, that Jesus Christ, who is appointed heir of all things, who is the radiance of God's outshining, and the outshining of God's glory, rather, And the very stamp and imprint of God's substance also upholds all things by the word of his power. He has made purification for sins. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens and the heights. He's already been to the Holy of Holies effectively with his own blood having purchased eternal redemption. And he now carries everything forward in history to a redemptive conclusion. So that's the same word here, used here. Let us be brought. And because it's not it's in the passive, God himself or the son performs the action of carrying us to completion. So the present passive subjunctive form of the verb Pharaoh is used here. P H E R O. And it's in the it appears in the active voice in Hebrews 1 3 where the Son is Himself, the radiance of God's glory and the stamp of his substance, performs the action of, again, upholding all things and carrying them forward by his powerful decree. The action of being brought to completion is performed by God on subjects who decisively abandon the merely anticipative things for the things of fulfillment." It's a divine action of which the readers are the beneficiaries when they decisively leave or abandon, strong word here, the merely expectant doctrines and praxis practices of the old system and get totally with the fulfillment that God has brought about in Christ. We aren't carried to maturity unless we decisively abandon the things that would hold us back. And so it says, let's be brought to completion. It goes on to say, not laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works again. Or we could say it this way, not again, laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works Dead works here is referring to sins and idolatry itself, which again is an Old Testament theme. The prophets were constantly urging Israel or Judah to repent from dead works, which is idolatrous practices. And so this harks back also to Hebrews 5.12, where the PT diagnoses his flock by saying, you have need again that someone teaches you the anticipative sayings of God and the anticipative word of Christ. Instead of that, he proposes that they be carried on to completion by being taught about the arch priesthood of Jesus and its implications and applications. I want you to notice again that I've called this the elementary teachings. That's how they're sometimes translated. Really, they should be called anticipative Anticipative teachings belong to the scriptures that were written before Christ came. They are invaluable, but they have only the anticipative word of Christ. They do not refer this this these words anticipative are not referring to the four gospels or to the teachings of Jesus contained in them in those four Gospels. Some people like to say, well, it's the basic doctrine that Jesus taught. Jesus didn't teach basic doctrine. Jesus taught the doctrine of fulfillment in himself. So they do not refer to the four Gospels, these elementary or anticipative teachings, nor do they refer to the teachings of Jesus contained in them, for those very teachings are part of the word of fulfillment they are referring to messianic prophecies the beginning word of Christ or the beginning sayings of God in the beginning word of Christ refer to messianic prophecies as they're rightly called or messianic passages of scripture in the Old Testament that either predict as in the prophets or prefigure as in the animal sacrifices the coming of Messiah, and they're in, they're designed to engender expectation of him. It is absurd to expect someone who's already come. Imagine that a beloved relative whom you've been expecting to visit finally arrives at your door, and because you don't recognize him, you turn him away or ignore him and say, Please go away. I'm expecting a beloved relative to visit today. We don't have the time or the food to entertain you. Then you shut the door because you didn't recognize him. Perhaps that relative, that beloved relative, would not go away. And instead, he would stand at the door and knock. Sounds like Revelation 3.20. Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone listens, opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. This is something that's even going on now in the so-called churches. Jesus is outside knocking because the people inside don't recognize who their Messiah really is. They expect him to be someone who's going to hurl all unbelievers into hell or come and rapture a few people out and then pound the earth For seven years in a great tribulation. They don't recognize Jesus. The real one is knocking on the door. He's knocking on the door of churches. He's knocking on the door of Washington, D.C., the Senate, the House of Representatives. He's knocking on the door of the Supreme Court of our country. He's knocking on the door of every citizen of the United States of America and every person in the world. He's knocking on the door of schools that have evacuated themselves from the values of Scripture and are now teaching demonic theories to children to the ruination of their souls. He's knocking on the door of churches, but he's knocking on the door of the hearts of every individual right now. And it's not to bring salvation. It's to come in and sup and dine, fellowship and give an experience of the coming kingdom right now in the present age. The anticipative word about the coming Christ fits well with other categories of teaching that are germane to that which we call the Old Testament, but that which Jesus and others called the Law and the Prophets, or the elongated phrase, the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms, and the Writings. So repentance from dead works here that he says let's abandon is conversion leading away from idolatry which is a theme of the old testament scriptures it was often the message of the prophets in whom god spoke in times past in hebrews 1:1 so was the topic of the general resurrection and of judgment connected to the age to come that's a biblical topic from the old testament scriptures of course, it finds fulfillment in the new. Then it says, abandoning the words about faith in God. That doesn't mean that we don't have faith in God. It means what Jesus said in John 14:1, He said, you believe in God. That's already something urged in the Old Testament. Now believe in me, something urged in the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, 1. Faith in God is a doctrine and command issued in the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and the writings. Even in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Faith in Jesus as God the Son is a decidedly New Testament thing. Hebrews is calling for the saints to believe in Jesus as their great and age-abiding archpriest. So all of these things, as well as teaching about ablutions. Now, because the word is baptisma here, people assume that he's talking about baptisms, like John's baptism or the baptism by John the baptizer or the baptism of the disciples, etc. But he's talking about ablutions here, A-B-L-U-T-I-O-N-S, ritual washings or cleansing. Again, a feature of the Old Testament, not only Old Testament, but specifically of the priesthood of the Old Testament. He's again referring to leaving behind an abrogated practice of the priesthood. If you see Hebrews nine thirteen to 14 sometime, read it. And laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come. All of these are Old Testament anticipatory doctrines. Daniel 12one to three, the resurrection of the dead and judgment, John five, twenty-eight to twenty-nine. Jesus makes it very clear that the judgment that follows the resurrection is one of justification and acquittal, we could say. So Hebrews six, two teaching about ablutions ritual washings or cleansing are what he has in mind cleansing or ritual washings is what he has in mind again Hebrews 9:13 to 14 if the blood of bulls and goats was effective in ritually purifying those who worshiped and offered those sacrifices how much more will the blood of Christ purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more the blood of Christ, who offered himself without spot as the Lamb of God, purify your conscience? So Hebrews 9, 13 to 14 comes into view here. So Hebrews 6, let's look at it so far as we have it from the very beginning. Therefore, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah. And let's be brought to completion. Not laying not laying down again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Of faith in God. Teaching about ablutions or ritual washings and cleansing. And this is another thing. And I'll kind of want to show some scriptural proof for my reading of this. Ablutions or ritual washings is in view here because this anticipative action is actually commanded in Exodus 30, verses 18 to 21, which says, and I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible make a bronze basin for washing and a bronze stand for it. Set it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons, the priests, Must wash their hands and feet from the basin. This is one of the washings he's talking about. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning up an offering to the Lord, they must wash with water so that they will not die. They must wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is the permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Their generations. Their generations will end as priests when Jesus comes and when he dies and is raised. Then it says the laying out of hands, leaving behind the teachings about the laying out of hands. This again is an anticipative priestly action commanded in a place like Exodus 29 10 to 11. Again, Holman Christian. Standard, you are you are to bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting and notice it again, Aaron and his sons must lay their hands, here's the laying on of hands, lay their hands on the bull's head, slaughter the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. We're leaving behind the word and the command of priests laying their hands on the bull and therefore leaving behind a whole Old Testament system of priesthood. So the bull has been slaughtered, the lamb has been slain in Jesus Christ. That's the point. In Exodus 29, 15, it says, Take one ram, and Aaron and his sons are to, listen, lay their hands on the ram's head. You are to slaughter the ram, take its blood, and sprinkle it on all sides of the altar. That's again Exodus 29, 15 and 16, HSCB, HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible. And again in Exodus 29, 19, you are to take the second ram, and Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the ram's Head. Slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on Aaron's right earlobe, on his sons' right earlobes, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Sprinkle the remaining blood on all sides of the altar. That's a command of the laying on of hands in the Old Testament. We are to leave behind these things they are the audience that receives hebrews is called to leave behind these commands which is another way of saying leave behind this abrogated priesthood and its practices and rituals similar instruction is found in leviticus 4:15 leviticus 4:15 that is 8:15 8. 8:18 8. and 8:22 So the laying on of hands by the archpriest is also most important on Yom Kippur, the the annual Day of Atonement, with the scapegoat ritual, which you all probably know something of. Leviticus 16.21, but notice here the laying on of hands again. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' wrongdoings and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head. Please notice here, incidentally, that on the Day of Atonement, it is not only the sins of ignorance that are atoned for, but sins of rebellious willfulness. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for that task. And so we have these are the things, all the things he's asking them to abandon are anticipative practices and anticipative commands because now is a time of fulfillment when Christ has come, when he said finished, when he said it's done, when he said it's complete, when he ascended to heaven, when he went through the second veil in the heavens with his own blood or with having obtained eternal redemption with his own blood. He goes into the holiest place of all. He is then told by the Father, you are an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He then sits down in majesty at the right hand of the majesty in the heights. So why then would we continue? Why would these people continue in an abrogated tradition? And so all of these, and then it goes on to say the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come. Now you say those are taught in the New Testament. Yes, but they are also taught in an anticipative way that doesn't necessarily honor the Lord. Let me give you an example. Jesus says to Martha, do you know Lazarus will rise again? Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead. Jesus said to her, I am that resurrection I am the resurrection in other words it's an Old Testament doctrine about the general resurrection of the dead but that whole thing's been changed now with Christ's resurrection from the dead and with us raised up with him in Colossians 3 1 and in his resurrection is already the the general resurrection of all humankind as in his death was the death of of all humankind, where when one died for all, all died. When he rose, therefore all rose. So he's saying, abandon the merely anticipative doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and judgment in the age to come. All of the judgment in the age to come, incidentally, as we've looked at, is already, it means the judgment of the cross, which will simply be remanifested in the day of the last judgment. In other words the ultimate judgment is a judgment of justification even of the ungodly <laughs> only of the ungodly because all are ungodly Romans 4:5 5, and 5:6 5, we could say a lot more about that but i'm trying to stay lean in this interpretation here lean to the text all of these are old testament anticipative doctrines that point to a fulfillment or a completion that has come in jesus who has been completed as the source and cause of age-abiding salvation and who has been designated archpriest for the age, like Melchizedek. For the hearers of the Hebrews homily, there's only one sane choice, to be carried along to completion by the same Son of God who is carrying all things to a redemptive conclusion and who is actually in the process of redeeming history. To be carried on to completion, therefore, is to be on the right side of history. It's to be in the redemptive flow of history, rather than in the part of history that's a decline. It is not in the decline of history, but it is in the redemption of history that we find ourselves as we progress in the Word of God. Now, I'm going to fan out a little bit and expedite this passage a little bit just to show you the overall, the overarching meaning of Hebrews 6.1 all the way through to verse 12 because I think that'll help you to see the interpretation also. Then we'll go back over some of the more minutia. Hebrews 6.3, now I'm going to read with commentary all the way through Verse 6, and will do this if indeed God allows. The fulfilled condition is used here in my view, meaning he will because it is his will. We will be carried on to completion. And God, not only if indeed he allows, he will allow. And of course, because it is his will that we do be carried along. Then here's the fateful passage that is so often misinterpreted. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who've experienced the heavenly gift, that's God's gift of his own love, and who've become companions of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, who's, who have tasted the good word of God, tasted the good Look at Hebrews 5.14, the word of values, word of God. And that means the gospel of a full and free salvation in Jesus, the Son of God. And the dynamics of the age to come. The Christian spiritual life is a foretaste of the dynamics of the age to come. Therefore, they've tasted or experienced the dynamics of the age to come. And then, having fallen away, that means committed apostasy by renouncing their confession. This is the insane alternative, the repulsive alternative. Having fallen away, to renew them to a change of mind, listen carefully to this, while they are crucifying to themselves. This is very graphic here. While they are effectively hoisting up on a cross the Son of God. All right, here it is. Let me illustrate it. Here's a Christian. They've made a public confession, a Jewish Christian. They've made a public confession of Jesus being the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They've made this confession publicly within their own assembly. They've even made it publicly in their renunciation of the old system but in order to gain the favor and stop the shaming and the cancellation that's going on toward them they go back say they go back and say well I'm going to go back and gain your favor again contemporaries of mine by offering animal sacrifices again in the temple by going to the feast by celebrating the feasts and going to Yom Kippur, where the archpriest will make my offering, present my offerings to God. All of that would be a re-crucifixion of the Son of God. It would be a like you publicly were hoisting him up on the cross for everyone to see. That's how you you want to have anything less attractive than that, more unattractive than that alternative. While it's impossible to renew you to that place where you were once through the initial repentance, while you're crucifying to themselves, while they are crucifying to themselves the Son of God and exposing him to public shame. That implies that the act of apostasy will involve what amounts to a public renunciation of the confession that they had made publicly and were urged to hold fast to. They made their confession in a public setting, maybe even, as some say, on the occasion of their Christian baptism, but not necessarily so. In any case, they made it publicly. To go back now would be to publicly renounce that confession. If they feared the shame of their contemporaries, in other words, they were in danger of shaming their Savior. The word of exhortation continues throughout this homily, culminating in Hebrews thirteen thirteen, which says, Indeed, emphatic, let's go out to him outside the encampment, carrying his reproach. That means bearing your cross. This is what I call instauration, a doctrine that has yet to be developed, at least to my satisfaction. The next two verses then in Hebrews 6 show that such an action would incur cursing and not blessing and burning of all the vegetation that their field had produced up to now. There's a de- definite correlation here then to 1 Corinthians 3:11 to 15. The day shall reveal it, it shall be revealed by fire. Etc., works incinerated, etc. The implication, per William L. Lane and his excellent commentary, is that they would incur the curses that were attached to the Old Covenant and the historical disaster that those curses would entail. They're found in Deuteronomy 29, Leviticus 26. They are called sometimes the cycles of discipline. And that also once again falls right into the A.D. 70 arc of coherence or trajectory again. Hebrews 6, 7 then, the agricultural analogy, for the land that drinks the rain that falls on it often and produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for receives a blessing from God. And that, again, we can confer with Hebrews 6.13 to 16 and Hebrews 10.35 to the concept of reward. But if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, the very kind of plants that are used to make a crown of thorns on your Lord, whom you re-crucify, by going back, as, it's, as he says here, but if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, this goes back to Genesis 3:18 and John 19:5, with an allusion to the crown of thorns and the curse of Adam. It is useless, about to be cursed, just like Jerusalem's about to be judged. Deuteronomy 29 verses 22 to 29, and Deuteronomy 30 is very effective here. It should be read in connection with this. Deuteronomy 30 is where, in verse 19, Moses presents before Israel either the choice of life or death, blessing and cursing, and to choose life and to choose blessing, of course. But for those who say there's no possibility of restoration, for those who choose choose death and choose the curse... They have to read Deuteronomy 30, which is all about the restoration that's prophesied of Israel, who rejects God. And so it says again in Hebrews 6:8, but if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, it's useless, about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. The field is burned. The soil is still there. The field is burned just like the works are burned and yet he himself shall be saved as 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 says. In any case, it is forecasting the upcoming to them historical disaster of AD 70. So, you just don't want a water a field that only produces thorns and thistles unless your whole goal is to produce thorns and thistles so that you can fashion a little crown to crown your Lord with when you crucify him again. Yeah, you say, wow, that was harsh. Yeah, it was. So is this warning. So all of this is a perfect depiction of the fate of apostate Jerusalem. And you can compare this with Rev the book, with our study of Revelation. Come out of her, my people says the voice from heaven, could actually be a title for Hebrews. Again, Hebrews has another plateau that it reaches in Hebrews eleven thirty to 31 with Rahab. Rahab, and this is fascinating, is depicted as having survived the destruction of Jericho, whose walls came tumbling down. And she was then led to a place outside Israel's encampment, meaning she identified with Christ. That's found in Joshua chapter 6. Apostate Jerusalem, now, this is important. You can recover some ground in Revelation if you want to get into this. Apostate Jerusalem of that time, which was slated for destruction, was likened in Revelation to Jericho, as it was in Hebrews eleven thirty-one and 30, 30 to 31. In Revelation, the same city, Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem, was likened to Sodom and to Egypt, as we saw last time, but especially to Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, all of which were destroyed in judgment. The plagues on Egypt the destruction of Sodom by fire and the destruction of Jericho by conquest, which is going to be the fate of Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem was going to have all that stuff. They were going to have plagues and fire and military conquest. Now, I'm going to end on, a, I think, a happy note, because Hebrews 6.9 comes into play in a mighty way here. Because here's where the PT preempts any possible misinterpretation of his words as if he was devaluing salvation itself or even suggesting that his hearers had even apostatized. He doesn't believe they have. He doesn't believe they will. In fact, he's persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself that they won't. And I'll show this as we go on. But Hebrews 6, 9, again, this is a kind of a, Beginning foray into this passage. We might have to go over it again. We might not. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll pass through this passage quickly to move on to the heart and center of Hebrews. We can do it if we want. We got time. But Hebrews 6 9 says, Now, even, uh, well, we don't know if we have time, though, do we? Hebrews 6 9, now, even though we're speaking in this manner, what's he saying? Look, I'm using rhetorical language here. I'm speaking like a rhetorician I'm using rhetoric not in a negative way and not in a superficial way but in a way that reaches you all I'm after he's going to say is that you would maintain the same earnestness you had in the beginning all the way to the end when you reach a completion when you reach a status of completion or real maturity. So he says, now, even though we're speaking in this rhetorical manner, we're completely persuaded. He uses the same kind of language as Paul when Paul says in Romans 8.38, I'm totally persuaded that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's also said, Paul said, I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus himself in Romans 14.14 that nothing is unclean of itself. So this writer is saying we're completely persuaded. He uses a plural here. Is he talking about himself and Paul who endorses this homily? Maybe, but he has a team that's agreeing with him. Now, even though we're speaking in this manner, we're completely persuaded in your case of the better things and of the things that belong to salvation itself. In other words, real salvation, you can't talk about losing it. Salvation isn't something you can gain and lose in terms of the eternal uh, age-abiding salvation, although we can, of course, gain and lose the experience of it in, in this evil age. He says, uh, we, uh, so even though we're speaking in this rhetorical manner, We're completely persuaded, in your case, of the better things and the things that belong to salvation. And he's essentially saying, you guys happen to be in the sphere of salvation even now in time. For God is not unjust to neglect your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints, and you're still serving them. That doesn't mean you got to do that to be saved, but it does mean we're sure that you're in the sphere of salvation because these things are going on in your lives, love and service. So verse 11 says, here's what he's after the whole time. So you can't get stuck. And fixated to the point of mental illness on some of these things in 6 4 through 6. This is what he's after. He said, We just want each one of you to show the same earnestness, enthusiasm, boldness to the full assurance of hope until the end. That's all we want. That's what we're doing. That's why we're talking this way, not to threaten you with the loss of salvation. This is all we want through this whole homily. We just want each one of you to show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end so that... Verse 12, you'll not remain sluggish, but be imitators of those like Abraham, as he's going to see, those, and this is in brackets, like Abraham, as we're going to see in 13 to 15 of Hebrews 6, but also others in Hebrews 11, 4 to 39, that you will not remain sluggish, but imitators of those who through faithfulness and patience inherit The promises, that means people in the past that demonstrate that they can actually experience the realization of the promises of God by which we become partakers of the divine nature in solidarity with Jesus. Now, so let me say this bold statement at the end of this this increment. The security and the universality of God's deed of salvation that he wrought in Christ are never in doubt in Hebrews, nor are they in doubt anywhere else in the scripture. The security in the 20th century to Telestai Phalanx received an insight about the security of salvation. In the 21st century, we received an insight about its universality. Now you may ask, Well, we've already received this word of fulfillment. So, how is this relevant to us? Why teach Hebrews now? Why this homily now? How is this relevant to us on the level of our own time? Oh, I don't know. Is God calling you out of some human tradition that he's negated and that he's displeased with in order to know Christ? How is this relevant to us? How indeed? For just one thing, one thing alone would be an occasion why we should teach this. The implications of the message of Jesus' arch priesthood reveals a salvific solidarity of all of humankind with Jesus, the eternal Son of God made flesh. The recognition of this Solidarity alone is the very cure for the disease that is metastasizing in our country right now, stoking polarization between groups along the lines of skin color, gender, political affiliation and ideology. All of this fragmentation, all of this polarization and hostility can be cured By the recognition of the message of Hebrews that under one archpriest who has made one sacrifice forever for all sins and put away sin by the offering of himself at the juncture of the ages brings about a solidarity of all of humankind. Which is the cure for the metastasized cancer of our culture right now. That's one reason. There's many other reasons why we've chosen to teach Hebrews, some of which haven't been revealed to me yet. And so, yes, it's timely. Yes, it's important. And on more levels than you would care to imagine, including on the level of our own time, Hebrews is hard-hitting, and it well should be. So, Father, we pray that the spirit of truth will accompany us, not only as we continue to study this homily, but afterwards and beyond as we contemplate it and as we apply its truths on the level of our own time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.